airlines have always had an emphasis on new technology. Over the years, airlines have needed to develop more and more software. Digital transformation is causing every large company to adopt the tools and practices of software companies, and that includes Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines has existed for more than 90 years. Over that period of time, the company has developed new systems in every generation of software, from the days of mainframe computers to a modern Java-based backend. When the DevOps movement started to take shape, Delta Airlines started to take a more focused approach on continuous integration, version control, and an organizational structure that removed silos between teams. Jasmine James is a manager at Delta Airlines, where she focuses on improving the software practices of the company. She joins the show to talk through the process of changing the developer culture within Delta, as well as what it's like to build software for an airline. Jasmine is speaking at GitLab Commit in Brooklyn on September 17th, 2019, and GitLab is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So if you're thinking about attending GitLab Commit, where Jasmine will be speaking, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash commit and enter code C-O-M-M-I-T-S-E-D, that's commit S-E-D, and save 30% on your ticket while also supporting Software Engineering Daily. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Jasmine James, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. You work at Delta Airlines. What kind of software does an airline need to build? Well, you know, you think about a traveler's um, interaction, or, you know, between the whole journey or um, throughout the whole journey, and all of that is supported by technology from, you know, checking in, bag being tracked, the process of them boarding a plane. So pretty much anything that you could think of, any type of technology, RFID, we are leveraging it here. <laughs> so lots of software. And Delta has been around for more than 90 years. Yes. Are there people at the company that are still working on the legacy software systems? Absolutely. So a lot of the backbone of the technology that that I just mentioned is supported by legacy systems like TPF, you know, lots of different things like that. So we still have those mainframe folks that are out there developing and actually adopting a lot of the more modern processes and uh, mindset, even within that legacy um, infrastructure. So it's really, really cool. Really? How much time do you spend interacting with those mainframe folks? Well, we are very early in our DevOps journey right now. So we are just getting them started with the process of version control, um, those types of things. And, you know, it's a slow process to adopt all these things, especially if, you know, they've been working in one way for a very long time. So I would say probably about 10% of our time is spent with a lot of that legacy development teams. So if if you're developing that legacy mainframe software, can you write that software on like a MacBook or on a on a Windows machine or do you need to be on a specific older type of computer? Yeah, it's all limited, right, to the technologies that are still legacy, right? So we're not able to leverage a lot of the more modern operating systems like Mac OS or Windows 10. They are actually pretty much utilizing the newer methodologies exactly where the legacy a legacy OSs are so in place. That sounds pretty tricky. That's a constraint I have not heard explored. Can you tell me about how I mean to what extent you've been able to port those modern processes to the older systems? 
Yeah, so we're really at a basic level right now. So we're wanting to do basic things like let's get version control, right? That's pretty much a basic capability of DevOps. Let's try to figure out how we can version code so that way you're not really stuck at a certain point within your development environment, right? So you can actually have those things versioned. It could be using its older version control, but let's just get version control and let's um, get automated builds happening. So those are the two things that we've decided to attack first. And once you get that build, even if we'd have to deploy it manually, at least we have version control and the build process automated. So it's some value that we're um, offering them. So what's the interaction point or the integration point when you have the older systems, the older like mainframe developers, their software must eventually interface or touch base with the newer Java-based systems. So what does that in- integration surface area look like and, and how do those different teams interact with each other? Right. So um, as you probably can guess, you know, we have a lot of different services that are leveraged here at Delta. And without getting too specific, you know, usually, you know, it's done through, you know, SOA calls or things of that nature that interface with, you know, legacy backend systems. So we're just working on modernizing those calls and, you know, creating APIs that serves those same capabilities. So that way we can have the new, more modern development methodologies kind of bridge between, you know, the legacy ones. So through SOA and API. This is an airline. This is not a company that's creating software that just displays cat videos or something trivial. Are there different constraints around these kinds of systems? Do you have to think about like safety concerns and extremely high reliability in this software? Or or what's the level of of safety and security that you need to perennially be worried about with building uh, airport-related software? Right. So we have, of course, different categories of types of applications that are being leveraged all across the airline. But our most critical systems, you know, are things like, okay, how can we make sure that everyone is on a plane or the safety checks have been done? So those are absolutely necessary for us to operate, right? And we are a regulated industry. So we have to answer to the FAA and other entities for all of these things. So those are the ones where we make sure that we have scalability and they're very reliable and resilient system. So that way, we don't have to enact a ground stop if these applications become unavailable. Other types of applications, you know, there's a little bit of wiggle room for the availability and resiliency, but we do have some applications that are categorized as mission critical that we absolutely must have. And then we also have concerns like everyone else when it comes to customer data and making sure that um, we're storing that properly. So um, we, of course, have safety policies around that as well. There's a tension in software development that unsure how to resolve. And that tension is that in some contexts, it seems like companies that are able to iterate faster are able to develop software that is more secure and safer. But I can imagine that some domains or some particular problems within domains, such as like flying an airplane, you would want the software development process to purposefully move more slowly because there's a particular kind of safety that you want to ensure through a slow development process. 
What's your opinion on the relationship between speed of software development and safety? Well, I think of where we've been as an airline and capabilities we've been able to provide through technology thus thus far. So, you know, in the past 90 years, right, that Delta has been operating in this space, you know, we've delivered software that enables us to run an airline, pretty efficient airline. And right now our focus is, you know, how do we speed up that delivery of software without pretty much giving up that quality or the safety that you've just mentioned. So I think that as long as we've identified the processes and the kind of the checks and balances, and and we've considered all of those throughout the process, and we've made sure that these are our gates that we cannot, you know, essentially skip over. I think that all as, as long as we keep that first and foremost, you know, you can absolutely speed up, but never skip over those things that are super important because your the life, the airline depends on it. You know, you think about a lot of these safety, um, pretty much things that have happened in the news lately, right? So that is something that could happen if you just, you know, for example, don't implement one of those processes that are currently in place. So yeah, absolutely have to keep those first and foremost, but I do think there are opportunities to speed up where you can. Delta has been moving towards DevOps, and that's a term that's hard to define. What is your definition of DevOps? So DevOps, oh wow, nobody's ever asked me that. So my definition of DevOps would be to provide pretty much a collaborative um, development and operations in one, um, you know, bringing it all together within one development team and breaking down those silos, essentially. You know, a lot of people equate DevOps to mean tools. I think that tools are an important enabler of DevOps, but I ultimately think that it's a cultural thing that we have to break down silos and change the mindsets of individuals um, and bring those two things closer together in order to deliver more efficiently. And when did Delta start going towards DevOps? Well, we've always had DevOps in a sense. And in some ways, there was collaboration happening within pockets of the enterprise. But we made it a priority to pretty much enable teams to adopt DevOps more easily around two and a half years ago. And the way that we did that is by um, bringing in some new tools um, that made it easy for us to implement continuous integration and continuous deployments here at Delta. So that is about two, two, two and a half years ago is when we really, really started to invest in the tooling that would enable us to, you know, have that cultural adoption and get that mindset going across the enterprise. So there are often a large number of behavioral changes and technology changes around DevOps and trying to do all of these things at once can be overwhelming. How has the Delta organization sequenced all the different changes that need to be made within the movement towards DevOps? Right. So when we started, we knew that the people part would be the hardest. So we tried to, one, build a foundation, which was bringing in new tooling, getting folks educated on what this tooling was and the value that it brought to the company. And once we did that, we wanted to kind of uh, spark a, a grassroots movement because you always have old 
um, early adopters, right? Those folks who are really excited to utilize these new capabilities. And we wanted them to take these changes back to their team and say, hey, we've been doing things in this way. Why not, why not try to leverage these new tools and work a little bit differently and more efficiently? So that's our way of, of trying to kind of move, make that move. Granted, there's no, you know, one size fits all or blueprint to how to do this. It worked for us. Granted, we still have a long way to go, but I think that what we saw was, okay, those early adopters, they went into their individual organizations and they started to kind of think think about these things and have the conversations and really question, okay, what efficiencies can we improve by bringing these into our space? So I think, you know, it really sparked it as, as we intended. Describe the software development organization, like in terms of its size and the breakdown of the different roles within Delta, like, I guess the most important question is probably how how big it is and how those employees are broken down into teams. Right. So I don't have an exact number um, of developers, but I do know that within IT, I Last check, I think we were out right around 4,000 people. And the way that we're structured here is around business line. So, you know, there's multiple areas of the business within Delta. So we have IT that is structured in the same way. So that way we can make sure that the business value for each of those lines is pretty much implemented right within their in their space and you don't have to compete for that. And within those individual business lines within our IT space, you have different development teams that work on applications within that that portfolio, if you will. So pretty much we're structured via business lines and then individual development teams within those larger portfolios. How do the teams, historically, I would say, how have have the teams interacted with each other, the different teams? Because you talk about the the silo-busting nature of of DevOps. You obviously want to break down the, the silos, but, you know, historically you have teams in in particular verticals. So can you just describe the the nature of the different teams and how they interact with each other? Yeah. So, you know, of course, there's different types of interactions across the portfolios. But I would say from what I've seen, most teams only engage, you know, when it's, you know, time to hand off or at some milestone. So after something, some epic has been completed and it's time to pretty much let the organization know about it. Historically, within, you know, any big organization that hasn't started to transform, you know, you have those throw it over the wall moments, you know, so that was absolutely what we had here. But here lately, you know, we are, and we're trying to get to business agility, right? And and collaborate more across teams and also within the team, be more cross-functional. So that has um, kind of dwindled down. The latter behavior I just mentioned has kind of dwindled down and individuals are actually seeing the importance of collaboration early and often because and historically, right, when you throw things over the wall um, to the next team, you know, there comes, they have to scramble and try to figure things out. But when you collaborate early and often, it makes for much more seamless experience across the board. And why is that? Are there any examples you can give of why it would be productive for teams or or how it's been productive for teams to cross-functionally collaborate? Absolutely. So one specific example that I can think of, large multi-portfolio efforts, you know, so bringing 
I'm trying to say it without saying too much, but just bringing individual development teams across multiple areas together in order to deliver a feature. And historically, you would have one team develop something in their silo, the sister team developed something else, and then the brother team developed something else. And then we just mesh it all together and hope it fits. But what we've done more recently is bringing those teams together from the inception of the idea, right? And that way, you have an understanding of all of the technical risks, any implications that developing this capability would have on the organization because you have everyone's perspective right then and there. And this actually made the implementation that much quicker because you knew everything up front, right? You weren't, you know, just building things as you thought they should be built. You were taking into consideration to the other team's um, perspectives and making changes based on that. So, this absolutely sped up the development time, right? And it also it also reduces the rework, right? Because you know what you're building at that point. You don't have to think about, okay, when we bring this together, we know we're going to have to redo some things because it's not all going to fit. You um, kind of iterate on it together um, throughout the development process. And, and that makes the final product resonate more with what the business wanted. So that's a real life example. And I know that's very generic, but yeah, it's kind of like just bringing multiple teams together and making sure that everyone hears each other, right? And then they have a better understanding about what to develop together and they iterate collectively over the over the time frame. Describe some of the tools that have been helpful in the move towards DevOps. Absolutely. So tools, we've been very purposeful with the tools that we've selected here. And one of the reasons that we wanted to spend a lot of time, you know, considering and mulling over exactly what we would have for developers here at Delta is because we want you know, to be able to attract and retain top talent. So for example, Git is an absolutely necessary part of any DevOps, right? You have to know Git, version for version control or, or SVN, something of the sort. We had a legacy version control tool. So we decided to go with, you know, GitLab just because of the ease of use, right? And we wanted to have something from it that was easy to manage from an administrative perspective. So for version control, that is that is what we decided upon. On the same note, when it comes to developer recognition, Jenkins, that's something we also decided to leverage because when you think of CI, you can't walk two steps without somebody saying Jenkins. So that's another tool we decided to go with. Other core offerings we decided to use are Sonar Q for code quality and make, making sure that we were able to identify opportunities within the code quality space as well as Nexus for our artifact repository to ensure that we had some internal reference to all of the dependencies that were being referenced from a Delta perspective. So those are our tools that we have currently in-house. So those tools compose a pipeline through which the code moves from being in its raw form on the developer's machine to a shared hosted repository to some testing environment. Well, I guess before testing, there's a code review process, and then it goes into a testing environment, or, or perhaps even before then, it gets static analysis, and I think you said sonar. So then you have static analysis, and then it moves through static analysis, and then you have a testing environment, moves through a testing environment, and then or maybe multiple testing environments. Perhaps you have some manual testing. Eventually, it makes it to production. Can you give me the, the overview of the, the code delivery lifecycle? 
Yeah. So let me just make sure I understand the question. You want to know exactly what it takes from that inception, an idea to go out there um, into our customers' hands, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Or I mean, to the extent that you want to talk about it, the extent you think it's relevant yeah. to the DevOps workflow. Absolutely. So we have implemented full CI at this point. Um, We're still working on our continuous delivery strategy right now. So I'll take it as far as CD, if you don't mind, um, since we're still kind of forming up some of those items. So basically right now, our process or our best practice for SDLC is one, making sure that I'm going to even take it a little bit further back from the requirement, right? So we use a term or a tool, um, version one, to capture all of the requirements and translate them into meaningful user stories and making sure that we're collaborating with our business side in the form of a product owner engagement before the development team even takes this into development. So that's our first step. And with that, we are also identifying any, you know, behaviors that we want to define and going from there. So as the developers get these requirements and work to understand them through the, you know, agile scrum methodologies and ceremonies, we then define our tests first and foremost, because we're driving test-driven development here at Delta just to make sure that code quality is something that is always at the forefront. Once we define the code quality aspects in the forms of different levels of tests, we're able to then start development. And this is, you know, we have different types of development here, but mostly Java. We work with our GitLab version control, define a branching strategy for the team in which they can effectively promote um, certain versions and build them into their test environments for testing. So right now, that's our process. Jenkins is what orchestrates that continuous integration. And right now, we're leveraging that for delivery into multiple environments as well. So that's our process right now. We're working on um, defining our continuous delivery, which would, of course, help us define different types of deployments, canary and blue-green different types of things, but we're still strategizing on that right now. I've always been so bad at these terminology breakdowns. What's the difference between continuous integration, continuous delivery? Continuous delivery is like more holistic or it's like higher level or something? Well, yeah. So continuous integration would be the continuous building. And I I call it like just putting all the pieces together and creating an artifact, right? So the end state for CI would be an artifact, a binary that encompasses what the developers have developed. So Jenkins is our chosen orchestrator for that. And Nexus is where that artifact lives for us here at Delta. Now for continuous delivery, I look at continuous delivery to be a standard methodology for delivering that artifact into multiple environments in in different ways. So it continuous delivery can facilitate blue green deployments, which you know, deploying a certain artifact in a subset of target servers and be routing traffic there, percentages across different environments. And right now we are actually only doing continuous deployment. I'm gonna throw another one in there for you, which means that we're able to deploy that artifact to multiple number of target servers, but not able to continuously deliver it through an automated fashion. So three different terms can be pretty confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I need flashcards. Right. <laughs> How does code review fit into this process and kind of the, the, the collaboration set of, of things kind of before it makes it into actually being built and, and static analysis and so on? 
Right. So we actually are leveraging GitLab for our code review process right now. We don't have a specific tool, but um, GitLab has a, lot, has a lot of great features within their merge requests that allow you to collaborate on proposed changes. So a lot of our teams are protecting the branch that goes into the CI process. And only if you complete a successful merge request are you able to then merge that code um, and generate that artifact. So standards, naming conventions, all that good stuff you have the opportunity to kind of approve before those changes are merged into the target branch. So that's how we are encouraging our development community to code review right now. Do you use any cloud providers? We do. We are looking, I don't even know if I can say exactly whom we're looking <laughs> no at problem. multiple cloud providers, public, um, and we also have an inter- on-prem cloud as well. I think I can talk about our on-prem cloud or what we're leveraging right now, which is OpenShift. And we're looking at uh, multiple public cloud providers to kind of move into a hybrid cloud cloud posture. What's been useful about OpenShift? I think that OpenShift is a great tool in the orchestration of the Kubernetes and containers. I think it makes it easy for our large, you know, development and IT organization to adopt it. So we've, you know, been able to create utilities um, and leverage a lot of the capabilities that OpenShift provide, such as routes, um, scaling within pods and all that good stuff to make it easy for teams to adopt this because this is very new. So you really want to create a low barrier to entry. You know, um, bare bones Kubernetes is awesome, but OpenShift makes it a little bit more palatable to the masses. Absolutely. I think that's that's the case with a lot of these, the kind of the newer infrastructure tools or even the, the ways that older infrastructure companies are remaking themselves because there's more and more companies that are needing to develop a pretty sophisticated software development life cycle. And just choosing the right set of tools for a company, let alone learning how to use those tools, is quite difficult. Uh, you know, it's it's like walking into a, a shopping mall, basically. And it's like, okay, you've been told you need a shirt, you need some pants, you need like a hat. And that's all you've been told in a pair of shoes. And you're like, well, but what kind of shoes? What kind of shirt? You know, like, is it a nice shirt? Is it a cheap shirt? Can I buy all this from the same store? You know, do they have to be the same color? And you have no idea how to mix and match these different things. You know, you could go to OpenShift and say, okay, OpenShift, I need this grocery list of things. And OpenShift will tell you, okay, well, here's a list of things you can, you know, we'll give you all of this stuff. We'll give you all the defaults. Here's everything you need. And you might say, well, but actually this thing is going to break for me and that thing is going to break for me. And you actually need to have some mix of, you know, perhaps going with some default solutions and some a la carte solutions. Can you tell me about the process of selecting vendors, of selecting tools and how Delta goes about doing that? Sure. So, you know, granted, we are still in this process and, you know, we're still trying to figure out, you know, what is going to be valuable for Delta? Um, what do these vendors 
provide that Delta could see some some benefit from. So I think that one of the things that we first need from a Delta standpoint is there has to be a need, right? So whether it's an application team that comes to one of the enterprise architecture representatives and says, hey, we would like to leverage this capability. So we start from there. All right, let's figure out this capability. Is there anything at Delta that we have right now that could kind of serve the same need? If not, okay, let's look at this external capability that's provided by this vendor. And then we kind of, you know, understand, okay, what value would leveraging um, would leveraging this capability offer? Is there a way that we can use, you know, maybe something that's open source or something that's um, doesn't require isn't required to pay for use to kind of get the same sort of benefit? And if not, okay, we take a look at if the value proposition is good for that business unit, or they just really really need it to um, mitigate some sort of risk. We go through the process of getting it approved through architecture. So we have, I call them gatekeepers to make sure that we're not bringing in just any and everything into the Delta environment because we don't want to duplicate any capabilities and pretty much pay for um, tools that that are already being leveraged here internally that we don't need to buy just because we don't, we just don't buy things just because. So once you get through that approval process, then it's the matter of, you know, figuring out is this going to be supported by the vendor? Because, you know, we have a very, our environment is very volatile, right? We have to react a lot, right? It's an airline. So we have to make sure that we have the support in order to maintain our SLAs from both an external customers, meaning folks that get on the plane and also our internal customers here, for example, development team. So we have to make sure that whatever vendor we select has the ability to support an organization like us. So those are just a few of the things that we we check out. You know, we have, of course, a formal process that we go through engaging with, negotiating and that kind of stuff. But really, it's about making sure that one, is, is what we're bringing in going to provide value to Delta? And two, can they support an organization of our size from, us, from maintaining our SLA and making sure that we are successful with using the tool? One tool that has risen in prominence over about the last four years is Slack. So when, when I started Software Engineering Daily, we did a lot of shows about DevOps that was about about four years ago, and and since then Slack has become really pivotal in a lot of organizations, and it's really altered the DevOps movement. Can we? Can you give me your perspective for how Slack fits into a, a DevOps workflow? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I talked a little bit before about just collaboration and breaking down silos, and Slack really does enable that. There's a other a few other collaboration tools do as well, but Slack is, you know, one of the leaders in this space. And one of the ways that I think that it really shines is just the level of integration that you have. So, being able to pretty much accumulate all of your meaningful data in one place from a development team standpoint. So that way the team can make informed decisions, I think is is very, very 
valuable. So um, as a development team, I'm able to know if my application is, is tanking via monitoring alerts, right? And then you can have different type of, call it chat ops, if you will. I know that's another kind of buzzword, but you can actually make changes from your Slack, you know, um, channel, you know, to the application and, and fire off some automation to kind of resolve or go do a little bit of deeper, get the logs, all that good stuff. So I think it really helps that collaboration. And instead of a developer just kind of getting an email, kind of going about it alone, um, digging into logs, you have the ability to kind of make it a team effort, which is what DevOps is, right? It's about collaboration and breaking down those silos. Because in the past, our operations folks would have kind of, you know, troubleshooted based on development direction and tried to solve the problem on their own. But now you're bringing that all together in one place, one location, and then you have that history for all time. So it makes documenting like very, very easy. Um, And, you know, no one likes to document, but I think it's a little bit easier if you have that, all of those steps within one place. So Slack does a great job with all of that. So I want to come back to the organizational changes and the behavioral changes. But I guess just while we're on the subject of tools, could you just give me your, your, your high-level perspective for why tooling is important and how important tooling is to making this kind of transformation? Because you know we both know that the organizational changes and the behavioral changes are really important. But my sense is that if you choose the right tools, they can reinforce certain behavioral changes that you want. So you can really get this positive feedback loop between your choice of tools and the behavioral changes. So maybe you could just give me your high-level perspective for how tools enable the right organizational changes. Yeah. So I think I'm trying to think of an example here because, of course, we use you know a lot of the tools that a lot of um, organizations are using out there. And okay, here's an example. One example that I like to go to when I talk about, okay, wrong tool, right tool. You know, it's really, there's no one size fits all tool for any organization. I think that one thing that groups should think about before selecting a tool is barrier of entry. And barrier of entry, in a sense, how easy is it going to be for someone to get started? Because the main thing that we aimed to do here at Delta was to get people started and kind of develop um, kind of a grassroots adoption kind of movement. And when you have low barrier of entry, it makes it a little bit easier for folks to kind of get started on their own because we all know that, hey, maybe this project doesn't have funding to start, you know, changing tools. I've heard that many different times, but when there's low barrier of entries and you make the value known, I think that you know, teams have an easier time of adopting. And with once you get them in, right, you know, you just start pumping them full of, you know, the DevOps good news, I call it, you know, and letting them know that these are the behaviors that, you know, a very efficient DevOps team participates in, you know, from collaboration, making sure that awareness um, of, you know, code that's going in, branching strategies, um, organizing your work, being able to facilitate all of that is very important. I think that a lot of the large players within um, the DevOps space do facilitate a lot of the basic necessities. But if there's any like specifics that, you know, an organization needs, I think it's important that they consider that. For example, integrations, right? So when you think about the 
larger DevOps pipeline, you want to make sure that everything plugs in, right? Because you want it to be a seamless kind of flow and provide some continuity for that experience once the developers um, adopt it. Because then it makes it easy when they get in for you to kind of reinforce those behaviors um, and governance around if you have the masses there, right? It's easy to kind of get everybody to adopt those things that you all are educating them on. So I would say just make sure that low barrier to entries and ensure that the core basic capabilities are present, which I think a lot of the the tooling vendors out there already do that. So what are the organizational changes that have been hardest to make within the organization? I would say... Okay, so I always I always structure it this way. You know, you always have those very excited folks that are ready to just try something new because the old way was not working. So you have those early adopters, or, or and then you have the folks that are they're kind of they're interested, but you know you got to kind of pull them in and say, hey, this is what's in it for you. And then you have those folks that are like, no. I'm just, I don't think this is meaningful. I'm just going to continue doing things the way that we've always done them because it works. And I think that one of the hardest organizational changes really for anybody is just figuring out how to provide a value proposition to those folks that are kickers and screamers, you know, they don't, they don't want to really adopt these new things because it's, it's very like earth shattering, you know, a lot of these things that a lot of these ideas that DevOps bring. So understanding and, and making sure that they, it can understand exactly what benefits are in it for them, I think is very important. And what we've done is we have a lot of folks that have been at Delta for um, a while, right? So just getting those champions, right? in the legacy space and making sure that, you know, hey, we understand their perspective and right. And we can really kind of tune and say that, hey, well, I know that you face this issue within the legacy tool that you're using. Well, the great thing about DevOps is this is how it solves that. Right. And really just kind of just addressing that specific thing and then kind of, okay, all right, well, let's see what this DevOps things thing is about then. So I think that's one of the the challenges is, is you know, getting those folks that are really gung-ho in those um, behaviors and, and processes over um, to the party and making sure that we convey and can kind of speak to what is valuable in them in order to get them to transition over and, and adopt some of these DevOps methodologies. Delta, there was a, the move towards DevOps involved a, a dojo. Can you explain what a dojo is? Absolutely. So got this idea. I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Target Dojo at all, but of the two, if you, two, two years ago, I think now, we had a visit um, to the Target Dojo. And the whole goal of it was to just bring together development teams and the business side and collaborate and build like awesome things. And we built one here in Atlanta. And essentially our dojo, um, it's called the Speed to, Speed to Market Dojo. It's a place of immersive learning. And that's what we position it as here at Delta. So Delta's dojo, we bring together different areas of excellence. So we have API design help. We also have DevOps, QA, and um, quality engineering as well, cloud, and security. And all of those um, technical kind of pieces are, are brought together through agile coaching. So Pretty much those six coaching competencies are um, positioned in the dojo, and we immerse teams in, in learning on how you can adopt these new ways of working in order to deliver value um, faster, 
better, with more quality, right? So that's what our dojo is here at Delta. And we've had over, like, I think about 27 teams. And we've only had it open for about a year and a quarter right now. So it's, it's been very, very impactful, I think, when you think about adoption and transforming an organization, it's very easy to educate, right? So we we get our training materials and we go out and, and we teach. But having an immersive learning experience is absolutely necessary because when you can teach someone a new method while they're actually doing their day-to-day work, it resonates like I think 50%, if not more, I mean, better to them because they can actually see how it makes, uh, it applies to their day-to-day life versus just conceptual knowledge. So yeah, that's our dojo. And it really has helped with adoption of a lot of the best practices across our competency areas. What other learnings have you had talking to other companies, other, you know, large and established enterprises that have gone through a a DevOps transformation? So I think that the target is the one that comes to mind. I know that we have to focus on bringing the business closer, right? And making sure that at the inception of a lot of these development efforts that everything is clear and you have close collaboration with the business. And that message has been, you know, very, very clear through Target. They do a product owner training. They encourage, you know, the business to participate in a lot of the, the scrum ceremonies. And, and that has helped make the development process and life cycle a lot better and smoother because you don't have any just misinterpretation, right? And you, you have everything clear from the forefront. So I think that's one of the learnings that, that we've gained so far. And what advice would you give from your own experience about in what other companies could take in undergoing their own digital transformation? I would think one piece of advice is figure out what works for your individual organization. I think that, you know, a lot of companies have stories, but, you know, just because what one company did um, and it worked for them doesn't mean that it'll work for your specific company. I think that a lot of the stories we hear are, are awesome, but each company has their own unique problems, right? So it's great to kind of start there, but figure out what unique problems you have within your space and then work on addressing them within either tech, not from technology, maybe it's a people thing, or maybe it's a process thing. But understanding those specific issues is an absolute must and not just taking a blueprint from another company, but work and, and, and examine your own internal structure, your organization to figure out what unique issues do you have and then work on addressing those as well. You're going to be speaking at the GitLab Commit conference. What's your talk going to be about? Yeah. So our talk, um, I have two talks. So the one that I'm doing solo is about avoiding the vendor lock when you're looking at implementing cloud native applications, whether it's a public cloud or on-prem. So how can you strategically tool your organization so that you do not become dependent upon a vendor? Because, you know, of course, there's a lot of competition out there in the public cloud world. So how can you ensure that you maintain that flexibility. And I'm doing a joint talk with Chris Bolton on my team. He's an awesome engineer. And um, we're going to be talking about how Delta is embarking upon our cloud native journey. So I won't give too much away, but we'll talk about what we're doing, maybe what public clouds we're 
planning on leveraging and how we plan on pretty much building out our processes in order to facilitate adoption of all of this new stuff. And do you go to a lot of these tech conferences? What what value do you get out of going to tech conferences and, and communicating with people at them? Absolutely. These are the highlight of my year. And the reason being is because I get an opportunity to talk to those folks that are on the ground implementing these things. One great one I went to going back to the dojo was a dojo consortium. And it pretty much was a collective of all of, I don't know, is dojoers a word, but (laughs) the dojoers across um, the US that had built dojos or were in the process of building them. And we had the opportunity to kind of say, hey, this is how we solved our problems. Go ahead and, you know, you try it this way. So getting the opportunity to get your direct questions for your direct issues um, kind of discussed with people that have been there and done that, I think is absolutely meaningful because, you know, sometimes you flounder a little bit when trying to solve these problems. But if there are folks out there who have done this, why not just go straight to them and see exactly what worked for them? So I love it. All right, Jasmine James, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Really, really appreciate it. It's been great.